0: Midtown Detroit studios of WDET this is Detroit Today
1: Today we're going to talk about criminal justice and mental illness for a really long time Police have struggled to respond appropriately to situations that involve people who suffer from mental illness or other social challenges Now, a state senator and a member of the Michigan Supreme Court are both pushing to have authorities take a more enlightened approach. We're going to hear from both of them about what they think should happen. It's next on Detroit Today, but first the news from NPR. And welcome to Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Steven Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've decided to join us. Conversations about whether law enforcement and our criminal justice system need fundamental change are not new. But they have absolutely picked up steam since the murder of George Floyd at the hands of of a Minneapolis police officer last year. Suddenly calls to rethink how we react to disturbances in our community are blaring in the mainstream debate about racial reckoning and other things in our society. One of the central questions in that debate is about mental health. How should we respond to someone who is having a mental health crisis? Right now, more often than not, the answer is by sending armed police officers to deal with the situation. But would it be better to send mental health professionals instead or maybe alongside police? That's the question we're going to start with today. In a bit, we're going to talk about bills at the state capitol that would fund and support care response programs that send mental health professionals and peers with lived experience to mental health emergency calls instead of armed law enforcement officers. But first, we want to start with someone who has dealt with these issues on a daily basis for many years. Cynthia Harrison is the mother of Anthony Harrison, who lives with mental illness. Anthony has been jailed many, many times. And Cynthia tells Detroit Today senior producer Jake Neer that her son's life would be very different if the response to his mental illness was more about care and less about law enforcement.
2: When my son was a teenager, he had an emotional outburst one evening near our home, in our neighborhood. And that prompted a neighbor to call 911, 911 to alert them of a disturbance when he kicked over a garbage can. A police officer was sent, and um, despite the fact that Anthony was experiencing a behavioral health crisis, he was arrested and charged with misdemeanor disturbing the peace and disorderly conduct. And that was the on-ramp for him into the criminal justice system. And it has severely impacted his life. Once you... On wrap into the criminal legal system, it's really difficult to get out of the criminal legal system. Although that incident was 12 years ago, he's got, you know, a record. And it is my belief and the belief of others that if behavioral health responders had been available to Anthony when he was in crisis, his life would have been very different. And it sounds like it's been a, a constant in, in his life. How I mean, how many times has he uh, been jailed uh, through this? Well, I can give you that number. He's actually 23 times. He's been jailed 23 times. There was one incident, actually, where he had been seeing a therapist. The therapist had gone out on leave. They suggested that he um, he had really been struggling. Um, they advised that he check himself in to the local hospital, the ER, psychiatric ER. He did this reluctantly, but he said he would go. I took him there, and there happened to be two officers with someone else. They recognized my son. He actually had a warrant for his arrest that he was unaware of, and they ended up arresting him and taking him to jail. (laughs) <laughs> right out of the psychiatric ER department. So so what would, you, what would you hope would be the difference if the approach was one of putting people who are equipped to deal with mental health crises uh, in these situations instead of traditional law enforcement? How do you envision your son's experience would be different? to visualize is somebody who is experiencing a mental health crisis, visualize them being met by a mobile crisis team staffed by plainclothes mental health professionals, and then I'd like for you to visualize someone who is experiencing that same mental health crisis, but this time they're being met by law enforcement officers. The latter would uh, likely cause panic re-traumatizing the individual who is already a victim of mental illness versus what the outcome would be if that person was met with somebody who was equipped to deal with a behavioral health crisis. I just want you to think for a minute about the difference in those two examples. Individuals who are experiencing a behavioral health crisis need to be met with help and not handcuffs.
1: Cynthia Harrison is the mother of Anthony Harrison, who she says has been jailed 23 times due to his mental illness. She spoke with Detroit Today senior producer Jake Neer. Now I'd like to welcome two more people who are working on this issue from the standpoint of getting more mental health professionals into position to make a difference in people's lives. State Senator Stephanie Chang is a Democrat from Detroit. She represents Michigan's first state senate district, and she is sponsoring bills that would fund care response programs that send mental health professionals and peers with lived experience to mental health emergency calls instead of sending the police. State Senator Chang, welcome to Detroit Today.
3: Hi, thanks for having me.
1: Also with us is Summer Berman, and she is the director of Fresh Start Clubhouse in Ann Arbor, which follows the clubhouse model of care pioneered by Fountain House to work directly with people living with serious mental illness. Summer, welcome to Detroit Today.
4: Good morning, Stephen. So glad to be here.
1: So, Senator Chang, I'll start with you. Talk about what your bills would do and how they might make a difference for someone like Anthony Harrison or his mother, Cynthia, whom we just heard from?
3: Yeah, well, thanks again. I mean, I, I can't understate, I mean, this is just such a, I can't overstate how important this issue is. Um, you know, right now we have, um, you know, just a system that doesn't allow us to properly respond to behavioral health crises. and. When we call for help, when someone's having a mental health emergency, we really should have someone who's best trained to give that intervention that's needed and get that individual the services that they need. Um, And so what our bills do is actually create grant fund programs, uh, community crisis uh, response fund grant program, as well as a behavioral health jail diversion program to help local jurisdictions across our state build either new or expanded community crisis response and behavioral health diversion programs. And what's great is that we actually do have models around the country and here in Michigan that we know are working and that are more effectively getting people the help that they need rather than putting them either in a, in a pathway to, to jail or prison or unfortunately, sometimes, you know, uh, we know that some of these calls can end up with injury or, or death. And so um, we know that these models can work um, but they need our support at the state level. They need more funding. Um, and so our bills pr- create the the structures to be able to to better support these really amazing local programs.
1: And talk about what you think might happen in response to these bills. One of the things that I think is kind of interesting about this issue is that it is one of the one of the ideas that often garners, Bipartisan support. In other words, it's not just going to be shot down uh, on a partisan basis in in the legislature. Is is I guess my anticipation. I wonder what what yours looks like.
3: Yeah. Well, you know, it actually is very much a bipartisan effort. I'm really grateful to work with Senator Rick Outman. Um, you know, a Republican who actually comes to this issue with a lot of passion and a lot of. You know, commitment to getting this done. Um, You know, I know from talking to him that he has talked to numerous sheriffs in his district that have said, yes, of course we need this and we should, uh, and that law enforcement needs help. They need people who are trained in mental health to be there responding. Um, And so this is one of those issues where. Of course, we've got the mental health um, stakeholders who are supportive, but we've also got the Michigan Association of Chiefs of Police who are supportive. Um, th- these bills passed unanimously uh, through the state Senate and uh, received a hearing in the House committee. And, you know, we hope that when the legislature returns in December that, you know, you know, I would hope that we can get this done before the end of the year. Uh, it's very important that we do this uh, as soon as possible so that we can. Uh, Really make sure that we're responding to these behavioral health crises in a way that is is more humane and that is also just makes more sense for everyone.
1: Hmm. So, Summer Berman, I would like to bring you into the conversation at this point. Uh, You're the director of Fresh Start Clubhouse in Ann Arbor. And there is a particular model that you follow there in terms of working directly with people who live with serious mental illness. Tell us more about the clubhouse model approach.
4: Yeah, absolutely. Thank you, Stephen. Um, so the Clubhouse model is, um, we're a community-based membership organization for people with mental illness that supports them in a variety of facets, kind of all facets of their recovery and rehabilitation. So while we're not a clinical program, we don't do med management or traditional therapy, um, what we do do is help people with a variety of life goals, get getting people what they want in life, right? So we which is the same things that everybody wants in life. We want employment. We want um, to finish our schooling that might've been interrupted by by illness in the case of people with mental illness. We want uh, a meaningful uh, peer support network. We want general health and wellness. We want you know fun things in our lives that that give us enjoyment um and and mostly uh we want purpose and meaning we know that people can um you know take their meds as prescribed and go to their therapy appointments and attend groups and see their psychiatrist but if, if you don't wake up in the morning and feel like you have a purpose if you don't feel like there is there is someone waiting for you somewhere that cares how you're doing um recovery is going to stall out and again that's true for people whether they have have <laughs> Uh, mental illness or not, but it's especially true for people with serious mental illness because they tend to be facing a higher level of social isolation than the general public. So that piece of community is, is really what our, what our intervention is. Um, we kind of think of the clubhouse as um, there's sort of analogy, like clubhouse as kind of PT for your mental health or as like a gym for your mental health. Um, so if you think about if you have a, you know, a serious um, physical uh, injury or you have to have surgery that you might afterwards, instead of, you know, you get fixed up and then you need to to do some PT to kind of build mm. that muscle strength back. Um, and Clubhouse kind of does that for people with serious mental illness. It helps them um, kind of get back into a regular life um, and allows them to be productive citizens of the community.
1: Mm. So I, I also would love to hear you try to put the work that you're doing at Clubhouse in a criminal justice context. In other words, how does that relate to the ways in which we ought to be thinking about how to respond to people who have mental illness challenges when they are in crisis and when there's an emergency call, for instance, to the police about mm-hmm. somebody's, somebody's behavior because of a crisis?
4: yeah so you heard Cynthia um talk about uh her son's experience being an on-ramp in the into the criminal legal system mm-hmm. um and and when someone is on ramped into the criminal legal system that's that that almost in in many cases, actually prevents them, as again you heard in her story, from getting the actual mental health treatment that they need. Um, and I think you know one thing that that gets that gets lost in this discussion sometimes is that mental illness is not a crime; it, it's a health condition. Mm-hmm. Um, however, when someone is treated like a criminal, they are more likely to begin to act. Like one, um, and when they they additionally when they enter the criminal justice system, then opportunities immediately begin to to deteriorate and become limited. Right, so in addition to spending time in jail or having fines or having probation, um, those things then have an impact, as we know, again in society, on someone's ability to find housing or employment. Once you have a criminal record, that makes all those things more challenging, and that's on top of already having a mental illness that makes those things more difficult to begin with. So it just adds uh, way more complication, again, uh, needlessly, because mental illness is not a crime. Mm-hmm.
1: Okay, we're going to take a quick break. When we come back, we are going to continue this conversation with State Senator Stephanie Chang and with Summer Berman of Uh, the Fresh Start Clubhouse in Ann Arbor. We also want to hear from you, uh, our listeners, about what you think about the idea of changing the way we respond to people who are in mental health crises? Do you support the idea of replacing armed police officers with maybe plainclothes mental health professionals when people are in mental health crises? What are some better ways to handle those situations? We especially want to hear from you if you're someone who has their own struggles with mental health or if you're a mental health professional or if you're a law enforcement professional. Tell us how these things look from your standpoint, how they look in the practical everyday of your life. Also, give us a call if you're someone who is related to or lives with someone who has these kind of challenges and the challenge of trying to care for those persons when, uh, when they're in crisis and perhaps when the authorities get involved. 313-577-1019 is the number on the phones. That's three one three five seven seven one zero one nine. You can also go to the WDET Facebook page or Twitter and put comments there. We'll be right back with more Detroit Today. You're listening to Detroit Today on 101.9 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, I'm really glad you've joined us. My guests our State Senator Stephanie Chang, a Democrat from Detroit who represents Michigan's first state senate district. Also with us is Summer Berman, who is the director of Fresh Start Clubhouse in Ann Arbor, which takes a really community-based approach to helping people who have serious mental illness uh, work through their crises and, and manage their lives. Uh, we're talking about what happens when people face mental health challenges or mental health crises and someone dials 911 to respond. The police come and try their best to respond to the crisis, but increasingly i think we are wondering whether the police are the right agency or the right people to be doing that should we be sending mental health professionals to respond to mental health crises would we see better outcomes for the people who are experiencing uh, those crises would we see less incarceration for mental illness Uh, we want to hear from you uh, about what you think about this what do you think of the idea of changing the way that we respond to people who are in mental health crisis uh, would you support the idea of replacing armed police officers with plainclothes mental health professionals when people are in these crises uh, what are some other ways to better handle those situations we especially want to hear from you if you're someone who has had their own struggles with mental health of course or if you're a mental health professional helping people with those struggles, or if you're a law enforcement professional, somebody who is responding to uh, these crises, uh, give us a call and let us know what it looks like uh, up close for you. We'd also love to hear uh, if you are close to someone who suffers from mental illness challenges. Uh, what does uh, what does this look like? We heard earlier in the program uh, from a mother Whose son has been arrested 23 times uh, in response to crises caused by his mental illness challenges? I know that is not uh, an aberration, that story. Uh, call and tell us about uh, the people in your life who struggle with this issue and how it has been handled. Again, 3135771019 is the number on the phones. that's 3135771019 you can go to. Facebook or to Twitter and put comments there as well and we'll work you into the conversation. All right We already got a lot of folks want to participate in this conversation I'm going to start with some social media comments Zach on Twitter writes It's a lot easier to respond to mental health crises with violence when a society is blind to the humanity of the people experiencing them dehumanization leads others to presume that a person is violent and therefore can only be quote stopped violently. Uh, Dr. Charles Bell, who was on the program with us earlier this week, talking about inappropriate responses to children in schools and that lead to suspensions and expulsions, uh, he says in this context, uh, we should send mental health professionals to interview when a mental health crisis occurs. Instead, we have criminalized mental illness and trauma. I hope as we reimagine policing both in schools and in mainstream society, We make an effort to move in this direction big neo on twitter writes uh, who should respond the proper agency the issue with that is there is no way of knowing what the proper agency should be until the situation is assessed since cops are usually first on the scene things can go awry better trained cops will have better results Uh, i want to go to some of the phone calls we have now and again three one three five seven seven 1019 is the number if you want to join. Let's start with Al in Royal Oak. Al, welcome to the program.
0: Well, thank you, Stephen. Mm-hmm. I love your show. Uh, I'm mean, a uh, survivor of mental illness. I, I'm sorry, I got to pull over. If I'm on the road <laughs> to talk to you. Uh, my mother and her brother were schizophrenic. Hmm. And of course, that's terrified me. if That's in in my genes or whatever. But um, my uncle committed, died. My mother died at 53 uh, under horrible circumstances. But hmm. the. Kinds of money, trying to save his sanity through the Christian broadcast network, and mm. all kinds of other issues. So,
1: so Al, I, I would love to hear you talk about your experience and and how easy it has been to get care or treatment for the challenges that you have.
0: Your upbringing from ten, eight or nine or ten years old. My mom. My dad took her to some place in Pontiac called, uh, well, it was called Clinton Valley at the time. It was like mm-hmm. one of those big monstrosity nut houses, And uh, so I only saw my mother six months at a time at that point. She would be locked up, and then who knows if they gave her shock treatments, lobotomy, all that stuff, mm. or... Her illness. That hmm. back then in the in the sixties, a husband was allowed to lock up their sure. wife in a nut house if she didn't, you know.
1: Yeah. You know, uh, Al, I I really appreciate the, you calling and and sharing what what sounds like a very difficult personal challenge that you've you faced for you know, a really long time uh, in in, in your life. Uh, Summer Berman, you know, I I wonder if you can speak to the challenges we have getting people the care they need, even outside the context of emergencies. Someone dialing 911 uh, to respond to someone's mental illness uh, challenges. Al's story reminds that this is something that people live with all the time, every day. And that it's often difficult to find help.
4: Yeah, absolutely. And and uh, thank you, Al, for for sharing that story. I think it's um, again n- not unique um, that people, uh, as you said, uh, care is getting better. Certainly, um, there there have been tremendous advances. Um, but but I think that that sort of illustrates um that it's it's relatively recently in sort of the the history of modern medicine that we've started treating people with mental illness like people first um your the uh twitter comment about um being blind to humanity and and sort of a presumption of violence it's really only uh, you know fairly recent that the medical community itself uh developed a, a better and 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 more correct understanding of what mental illness actually is, Um, and that very much, um, you know, has trickled out into the general public, right? So the public largely still does not understand Mm -hmm. mental health and mental illness, Um, and and again, that, that really does lead to that kind of misunderstanding of what what is mental illness? Is someone with a mental illness are they violent? I think there is a there's a a, a great assumption um, that most people with mental illness are violent, and that if someone is having a mental health emergency, it is inherently a dangerous situation, and that's just not the case. In fact, people with mental illness are far more likely to be victims of crime um, or violence than to perpetuate it.
1: Hmm. Uh, again, uh, Al, I really appreciate the call and your frank discussion about the things that have happened to not just you, but but to other people in your family uh, around this issue. Uh, I also want to thank uh, State Senator Stephanie Chang for having joined us. Uh, she had to, to run to a meeting at, uh, a, a, at this point, so uh, she's no longer with us. But it was really great to have her here explaining the bills that uh, she has sponsored to try to deal with Uh, these challenges a little differently uh, from an emergency standpoint. All right, let's go back to the phones. Uh, Colleen in East Detroit, you're up next. Colleen, what's on your mind?
6: Hi, uh, Stephen. Thank you so much for taking my call, Mm -hmm. Um, particularly after hearing the last caller and what your guest just said. I happen to be a person that had a late-in-life ADHD diagnosis, late-in-life PTSD diagnosis and a late-in-life ODD, which is oppositional defiance disorder diagnosis. Mm -hmm. Okay. And these things have completely ruined my life. But I also happen to be a middle-aged white woman with a very extensive vocabulary. For me, getting help or trying to get help in the last six years has been absolutely nothing but roadblocks. Mm. I've had a literal doctor look me in the face and say, you can't have ADHD. You outgrew it at 18. Even though my entire life lines up with what happens hmm. with women who are undiagnosed with ADHD. I can't hold down jobs. I don't have much of a social life. I have a very difficult time with relationships at all.
1: Hmm.
6: But you wouldn't know it to look at me because I'm charming when you first meet me. But I have a mental illness. And going in, I've spent six years here in Detroit desperately, desperately trying to get help. Hmm. So when you say to people, go get help, go see a therapist, we try, but there's nothing but roadblocks. And the entire system is set up to stop people. We have to remember a thousand different dates to try and get in, to talk to people. Hmm. My entire mental illness is based on me forgetting things. Right. How am I supposed to remember all these things? Yeah. You know, yeah.
1: Colleen, you know, I, me an email yeah. about these. Colleen, I really appreciate your call. And I just, from the tone in your voice, can hear the, the frustration and, and maybe even desperation about the inability to get the help that, that you know you need uh, Summer Berman, I-, I wonder what your response is to Colleen here.
4: Yeah, I again, I think unfortunately, Colleen's experience is is not unique that we um, as a society do not invest. In mental health, the way that we should, um, and and I, I will say that you know one of the things that that Clubhouse programs do um, is that we provide a lot of kind of support or uh, support services to people like Colleen who, um, you know, want to go back to work, want to do the things that they have, uh, that they want to do in their lives, but just need a little bit of help kind of getting getting the loose ends together, right? Um, so that's where a, a clubhouse program could could potentially be helpful for someone. Um, but 100%, we do not have, I know so many people are, are on wait lists. They can't get in someplace. They can't even, uh, you know, Colleen was describing sort of all the, The hoops that you have to jump through and million different phone numbers that you have to call to find someone who takes your insurance and then also, um, you know, is available and also works with the types of diagnoses that you have. It's, we don't invest enough in mental health care at at all, mm-hmm. and and one of the things that this that this bill can do is certainly not solve that entire uh, entire system, um, but to to take a little piece of it, right? If we, if one little spot, we can remove police and put in uh, mental health professionals, that's one step forward towards providing the mental health care that we need overall. Yeah,
1: yeah. Again, Colleen, I really appreciate the call, and of course. Wish you luck in in finding support for uh, the things that that you need uh, that you need help with. Let's go to another Colleen. This Colleen is in Troy. Colleen, welcome to the show.
7: Thank you, Stephen. Uh, mm-hmm. Yes, another Colleen, so I hope I'm not confused. At any rate, um, <laughs> I am a 26-year veteran of the Troy Police Department. I'm also a licensed mental health professional, so I hmm. feel like I can give a good okay. perspective here. Sure. Um, firstly, I think a combination approach would be great, whether it's a law enforcement officers who have been cross-trained in mental health response and or um, MHP accompanying police officers to these kinds of runs. Um, Well, you know, a a thing to keep in mind always is safety first, and oftentimes mental health professionals are not trained in uh, police procedure, and what may seem like an overreaction is, in fact, an appropriate reaction to a potentially dangerous situation. Hmm. Um, I can tell you that each time, almost each time I've been injured on the job, it is involved mentally, mentally. unstable individual who unfortunately was reacting in a violent way. In addition, family members typically don't call us about your everyday mental health difficulties that their loved ones are experiencing. They call us when the person has become violent. Hmm. And at that point, you know, you need somebody in there who knows what the heck they're doing in terms of protecting the family members and the public at large. A third point I want to make, and this is very important, contrary to what you may have heard um, from various sources, the vast majority of police officers are very empathetic to those experiencing mental health issues. Hmm. We get into this line of work because we want to help people. Mm -hmm. Um, I can't overstate that. That has been my experience for the past 26 years. Of course, there are a few here and there who, you know, aren't of that mindset, but the vast majority of us are.
1: Yeah. So, so Colleen, I wonder if you can talk just a little because you have 26 years of experience as a, an officer here in in Detroit. If you can tell us how commonly this this issue comes up uh, uh, and what what it's like when you go on a run and it's clear that the person that you're responding to is, is having some sort of mental health crisis.
7: Yes, well, it's happened more frequently in the last few years due to COVID issues. You know, the, um, the isolation and the uncertainty surrounding COVID, you know, exacerbates whatever um, the pre-existing condition there may be there. So unfortunately, there have been more calls for this. You know, these kinds of um, situations. When you go on a run... Uh, mentally, you know, it's referred to in code as a 1096. And that is somebody who's experiencing a mental health problem of some sort. Hmm. You do not know what to expect. You could end up with shots being fired at you, which has happened to me. Hmm. You could end up with somebody spitting in your face. You could end up with somebody actively rolling around on the floor in their kitchen um, with mom and dad trying to control them. Mom and dad both being in their 70s. Right. Or you could end up with somebody who's just crying and experiencing a, a significantly, um, you know, a significant depressive episode. So you don't know what mm. you're dealing with. And as much as mental health professionals would like to respond to those things, it's not appropriate in all cases. Safety must take precedence, mm-hmm. and you need somebody there. Who can uh take control of the situation if it goes sideways
1: yeah yeah colleen i really love that you called the program and, and could share your your insight but also your experiences in this in this area i really really appreciate that add to the program summer berman before we we have to break i'd love for you to talk a little about what colleen was saying there at the end about safety And that is the issue that we hear about all the time when we talk about uh, dealing with uh, situations where people who are experiencing mental health crises come up. But we always think, well, the police have to be there because it has to be safe. But in the environment that you work in, I would imagine that there are times when safety is an issue too. And you're trained and you train people to deal really differently with that challenge than the police do. And that's, that's kind of the point.
4: Yeah, and I, Colleen, thank you so much. I am. I am so. Uh, I think this is such an important call. Um. And and I think I, I, a couple real quick responses is that I totally agree that just because someone has a mental illness does not mean that there is not potential for violence. Right. The same as any call. Sometimes it's going to be violent, and we might need police. Right. We're not saying that in those. If someone has a gun or something like that, that that we don't want police intervention there. Um. On the other hand. Sometimes a situation if someone is in serious psychological distress, the mere presence of a police officer, an armed officer with a weapon, um, despite how good they're trained, despite how um, you know, how they, they present to someone, someone who is already in a heightened state um, of, of alert, of awareness, is usually not going to respond well to that situation, and it's going to inherently become exacerbated just by the presence of the police officer walking in, again, regardless of their training or their approach. So having someone there who who is trained um, to de-escalate that and is not going to have that same kind of impact is is really, really crucial. But we absolutely agree that sometimes it's, it's a police officer, sometimes it's going to be a care response, sometimes it's going to be a combination of both. Um, and, and that police training is, is, is important
5: as well.
1: Yeah. Okay, Summer Berman of the uh, Fresh Start Clubhouse in Ann Arbor. It was really great to have you here for this conversation as well. Thanks so much for joining us.
4: Thank you. So glad to be here.
1: We're going to take a quick break, and when we come back, we're going to talk about some other innovative ways the state is trying to rehabilitate people in the criminal justice system instead of simply punishing them. Michigan Supreme Court Justice Beth Clement joins me to talk about a new infusion of resources into our state's problem-solving courts. Stay with us for more Detroit Today. This is Detroit Today on 1019 WDET. I'm Stephen Henderson, and as always, thanks for tuning in. We've been talking about how people who struggle with mental illness sometimes end up in perpetual cycles of interaction with the criminal justice system. We've been talking about the front end of that problem, how police are often ill equipped to deal with those situations. But now I'd like to talk about another side of the criminal justice system and its role in this the courts. Here in Michigan, people with mental illness sometimes get the opportunity to participate in specialized courts meant to keep them out of jail or prison. Problem-solving courts also include drug and sobriety courts, as well as veterans treatment courts. And all of those programs are getting a boost here in Michigan. The state recently announced nearly $17 million in grants for problem-solving courts. Here to talk about it is Michigan Supreme Court Justice Beth Clement, who serves as the court's specialty court liaison. Justice Clement, welcome to Detroit Today.
5: Thank you, Stephen. Good morning. Thanks for having me.
1: Yeah, great to have you here. So for listeners who aren't familiar with the concept of problem-solving courts, just spend a little time talking about what they are and how they work.
5: Yeah, absolutely. So, um, currently Michigan has 204 problem-solving courts, and as you mentioned, that includes uh, drug sobriety courts, mental health courts, and, and veteran treatment courts. And what these courts are, are an alternative to um, the traditional uh, ju- uh, judicial process and, and probation um, that has been you know, longstanding in our, in our justice system. Um, and a number of years ago, we had um, some you know, really passionate judges that said, you know, what we're doing is not working. We keep seeing the same individuals coming back through the system, and we know that they have underlying trauma and underlying um, issues, whether that's mental health or um, addiction issues, and we really need to do something different to help them get the assistance that they need to get their life back on track so that they stop interacting with the justice system. Um, and, and so our problem-solving courts were, were born, um, you know, through pilot projects um, years ago. Um, and what we have now is a very robust program um, throughout the state. Um, I, 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 the last number that we saw was 97% of um, Michigan of Michigan's population has access um, to these courts around the state. Mm-hmm. Um, and what they are is a very strict supervision um, and treatment under the direction of um, very dedicated judges and teams that come together to say, okay, what is this individual? Um, uh, what are they struggling with? Is it is it drug addiction? Is it mental health? Is it both? Oftentimes we see you know coexisting um, conditions and what is it that we need to do to assist them and, and what kind of treatment do they need? what kind of support do they need um, in order to help them um, you know, really tackle what it, what has led them to the justice system. Um, You know, I I, I like to to share that, you know, these are very difficult programs. Um, Most of the time, you know, when people enter them, um, they they wonder what they got themselves into because probation um, or possibly jail time might be easier um, than what these programs um, offer participants. But by the end of the program, um, what we hear consistently is that a problem-solving court saved their life. And had they not had the ability... Um, to participate in one, they, they don't know where, where they would have ended up.
1: Hmm. Uh, and the outcomes, the different outcomes, I imagine, are the are part of the thing that's driving this extra money that we're now going to, to, to plow into these courts. Uh, talk a little about what the $17 million in grants will mean for the work yep. that these courts are doing.
5: So we have been, um, the, the Michigan Supreme Court, um, through our state court administrative office, um, has been tracking the data on the success of these courts, um, and we do that to make sure that the money that we're that we're receiving and investing in them um, is being put to good use and that and that we're getting the results that we believe um, these these courts offer. Um, we also you know are able to use that data, take it to the legislature, take it to the governor, and say, "Look at how successful these are um, and And we have had tremendous success um, partnering with with uh, the legislature and the governor. Um, to support these programs. Um, and that's because what we what we track data-wise looks at um, the impact on public safety. So um, we, we track our, how the graduates are doing um, within three years of admission to the program, and they are nearly two times less likely to be convicted of a new offense. Mm. Um, and, and 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 that's in our in our drug court programs and our sobriety court programs. They're more than three times less likely to be convicted of a new uh, new offense. We also track unemployment, and when we have individuals that are coming in that either are unemployed or don't have stable employment, um, and what we're seeing is is tremendous increase in employment opportunities and and being able to maintain employment um, once they graduate um, from from the program. So. Um, you know the the numbers that we see are are, are very significant ninety six percent of adult uh, drug court graduates and eighty six percent of our of our drug sobriety court graduates um, are are employed. Um, we see a drop in unemployment by by eighty one percent among amongst our veteran treatment court graduates um, and and then we track how individuals in our mental health courts are doing um, and and their interaction um, after they graduate from the program, whether or not they're continuing, um, you know, treatment, medication, um, and so so we are able to track all of this to show the impact that it's having on our communities. Which which we know, um, if if individuals are getting their lives back on track, um, we have we have safer communities.
1: Hmm. So I, I want to talk just a little about how you can draw distinctions between somebody who's got an issue that can be addressed in these problem-solving courts and someone who can't. I think it's obvious that you're not going to be able to divert 100% uh, of of offenders uh, into these courts. Some people are are going to have to stay in, in regular courts. I wonder if you can just talk just a little about why... Why eligibility uh, applies in in some cases, and in others might be inappropriate.
5: Um, so, you know, there's some statutory requirements of who is and is not eligible. Mm-hmm. So that's the framework that the courts start with. Um, but they have they have teams of you know prosecutors, defense attorneys, um, you know, people from the community, whether that's you know mental health professionals that 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 look at an individual case and say could this person benefit now is that to say that they might look at someone and say i think this person would be would would do really well in a problem solving court and and they don't yes of course we have situations like that i you know I've, i've visited a number of problem solving courts where um participants you know share their story and they had the opportunity to be in a problem solving court before the one that they're currently in mm-hmm. and they and they failed they they were not ready for it um and but but they took the opportunity before them um with that next interaction with the justice system and said i have to do this this is hmm. this is the time to do it um yes there's going to be some some individuals that you know that are just not the right fit for this um it takes that team um to to look at at, at the the entire um, individual and and their their past history to say you know is this something that that would be a benefit to them do we think that they can be successful um, and is this something that you know that they at least um, have an interest in doing and, mm-hmm. and I say that because not every individual is saying yeah I want to do the harder program instead of doing traditional probation sure. generally individuals that are, are coming through the justice system they're at a very very difficult time in their life and especially if, you know, they've had, um, you know, uh, any type of fallout with their family or friends disconnect there, you know, this is, this is presenting them an opportunity to have an entire support system around them, the other participants in the program and the entire team that's there to help lift them up and get them the assistance that they need.
1: I'm talking with Supreme Court Justice Beth Clement. Uh, She is the court's problem-solving court liaison. We're talking about problem-solving courts, uh, places where people who have uh, social challenges can uh, be treated rather than just punished by the criminal justice system. Uh, A new $17 million grant is really going to uh, expand the opportunity for people to participate in these courts here in Michigan. Uh, If you want to join the conversation, give us a call. Let us know what you think about the court system focusing on rehabilitating offenders rather than punishing them. Uh, Do you think that is the way we ought to be going? Uh, Do you think that's something we ought to be expanding as we think harder about the purpose and the outcomes of the criminal justice system in our country. As always, the number on the phones is 313-577-1019. That's 313-577-1019. You can also go to Facebook and Twitter, put comments there, and uh, we'll work you into the conversation. Uh, justice Clement, I want to I put that same question to you about the broader context of, of this discussion. Should the default in our criminal justice system be more rehabilitative as opposed to just punishment and confinement should we be defaulting to the idea that this is the right way to deal with with crime and with people who commit crimes for you know reasons that uh, that they aren't entirely responsible for
5: you know i think that's that's what we see um the the, the trend heading towards Uh, we um, Has started at the, the Michigan Supreme Court, at the Judicial Council, bringing together judges from around the state, talking about what the judiciary should look like um, going forward. You know, the pandemic helped us, um, you know, pull that together and really um, give us an opportunity to focus on what we learned during the pandemic and how we want to move forward. And and you know, without you know without exception, that's what I hear from our trial court judges around the state. That that is, you know, you don't have to have an actual you know formal problem solving court program in your court to sh- to model what what our problem solving courts stands for. and that is understanding you know the underlying trauma or issues that are bringing individuals into the criminal justice system or the justice system as a whole. Um, You know, we're we're looking at at this type of model with our family courts as well and individuals that, um, you know, that are, you know, at risk of of losing their children because they may have a mental health um, um, condition. They may have a drug or, or alcohol addiction. Um, And so we're looking at taking this and, and, and applying it across the spectrum mm-hmm. when it comes to to the judiciary, um, and and the reason that we're doing that is because we have the data to show that that our traditional models, you know, don't, you know, are not leading us towards rehabilitation. Mm-hmm. Um, it's you know, it's 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 punishment, and it works in in some instances, and it, in in some cases, it's the only option. Um, but we know that in 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 more cases, we can actually assist people. Um, to work through those things and and get, you know, get employment, get transportation, get stable housing, and that's really um, what we should all be working towards.
1: Yeah. Okay. Justice Beth Clement, great to have you here for this conversation. Thanks so much for joining. Thank you. That's going to do it for us this week. Come back Monday when Congresswoman Debbie Dingell is going to join the program to talk about the infrastructure package and other news out of Washington, D.C.,